We finished up last time talking about, um, did we talk last time about the ancient approach? Did we talk about this stuff? I can't remember where we stopped. The, yeah, Hippocrates, okay. So Greek rationalism and then um, Hippocrates' development of medicine. Um, so um, so that brings us to looking at um, how mental illness was perceived in the Middle Ages. And uh, what happens uh, around 1100 AD in Europe is uh, the, develop the rise of and the development of um, asylums. And essentially, here's the problem. We have people who are uh, mentally ill who are creating, who are either dangerous to themselves or dangerous to other people or just generally creating a disturbance in society. And so uh, we've got to do something with these people. We don't have effective treatments. Um, you know, we might try using um, an exorcism ritual or something to see if we can, you know, purge the demons from their souls or whatever. But uh, these things typically don't tend to work real well. So... Uh, essentially, all we can do with these people is lock them up. You know, put them in a place where we can take care of them, where they can be uh, kept from being dangerous to themselves or other people. And so, um, these asylums uh, really they they come out of what happens earlier on uh, in history uh, during the Crusades, for example, about 700-800 A.D. Um, leprosy winds up being transmitted back to Europe from uh, the Middle East and, the, and Asia. And so um, what happens to, in order to deal with leprosy, which is a, a contagious uh, disease which causes um, basically deterioration of your uh, body cells and your skin and your bones and everything, uh, they built these asylums. They were originally called leprosariums to isolate these uh, people with leprosy. And uh, they also, they not only used um, uh, asylums, they also would put them on ships. And so these ships would sail around uh, and go from port to port. And um, uh, they would, uh, you know, pick up supplies as they went along. Um, but basically, they had to isolate these people from the general population. Well, as a function of that isolation, that um, uh, uh, then the disease actually stops being transmitted. And after about 200 years, leprosy isn't a problem anymore in Europe. Um, well, guess what? About 200 years later, they've got all these buildings that are empty, and they're going, huh, what should we do with these buildings? Well, we'll put these people in there. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, what will wind up happening is... <clears throat> Uh, they wind up um, basically imprisoning these um, uh, mentally disturbed individuals in the asylums. Um, and the conditions were absolutely uh, horrific. Um, and, uh, for example, uh, you know, people would just be chained to a wall. Uh, you know, they wouldn't have any freedom of movement. They couldn't, you know, experience sunshine, fresh air. Um, they would be put in cages, literally. 
Uh, and in fact, uh, I think probably your book talks about this, but uh, the people who ran the asylums actually made money using the people uh, who were interred by charging admission for people to come and watch the crazy people, right? Because, um, you know, crazy people do some funny things sometimes um, or just bizarre, you know, so it's sort of like a freak show, right? And um, that's, not, uh, that's not a way to get better from mental illness. You know, you don't get better from mental illness by just caging people up and putting them in even more stressful conditions that are going to exacerbate their mental illness. But of course, at the time, there was very little known about the cause of uh, psychological disorders. Uh, so this was the best that they could do, essentially, at the time. Now, it, um, <clears throat> essentially, treatment of people with psychological disorders doesn't change that much over the course of the next few hundred years. Um, uh, and just to give you a sense of um, what this is like, uh, anybody familiar with uh, the um, Project Gutenberg? Anybody here familiar with that? Project Gutenberg is... Um, uh, is, a, is a project run by people, volunteers, and the idea is to try to go out and collect as much literature that um, does not have copyright protection anymore. It's entered the public domain because it's out of copyright, and scanning it and getting it into computer databases so we can preserve it because, you know, these books will disappear and um, we won't have any record of these things anymore. And one of those... Uh, books on Project Gutenberg is called uh, Diary of a 19th Century Asylum Inmate. And this is actually, you know, presumably a diary written by a woman who uh, she was placed into an, into an asylum because she was experiencing a major depression, it sounds like, from what uh, she describes her symptoms and uh, what she describes her family's response to those symptoms. So her family basically says, you've got to go into this asylum. And so um, she describes uh, an incident there. Uh, March 13th, I must write this while fresh in my mind for fear I may forget. There is a Miss Short here, fair-haired, nice-looking girl. She stands up and reads in the Testament as if she were in Sunday school, recites poetry, and tries to play on the piano. I did not think her much out of order when she came, but she is now. She has grown steadily worse. Her father came to see her. She cried to go home with him. I wished him very much. I wished very much to tell him to take her home, but Mrs. Mills did not leave them, and I dared not speak to him. She, Mrs. Mills is like the caretaker in the ward here. Uh, she has grown so much worse, she tears her dress off, so they have to put leather handcuffs on her wrists so tight they make her hands swell. I say, oh, Mrs. Mills, don't you see they're too tight? Her hands look ready to burst, purple with blood. She paid no heed. It doesn't hurt her any. Yesterday she tied a canvas belt round her waist so tight that it made my heart ache to look at it. I'm sure it would have stopped my breath in a short time. They tied her to the back of the seat with the ends of it. And so, um, you know, this is just one little incident among millions, right, um, of, uh, you know, basically without 
any form of therapy or medication, all you can do with these people who are creating a problem for themselves or other people is tie them down. And that's, um, again, notice how she says uh, she didn't seem that much out of order when she came in, but she kept getting steadily worse. Well, guess what? You put someone with a psychiatric disorder in a very stressful situation, that's going to exacerbate the symptoms typically. So... Uh, I don't know. I don't know if there was a year on it. It was somewhere in the 1800s. Yeah, I'm not sure whether it was early or late 1800s. That is a relevant question because of what happens in America during the 19th century that is going to start changing the asylums. Remember from your reading? Um, not exactly. Um, not medicine. The um, no, the reform movement. The reform movement, which actually starts in France with Philip Pinel, remember that name. Um, and Dorothea Dix is going to be uh, the American who's going to uh, start to try to reform these asylums. What's that? Oh, sure. Yeah, she's. Uh, yeah, uh, 19th, when we say 19th century, we're talking about 1800s. No. Nope. Oh. True. And anybody catch the news this week? The Department of Justice released a report this week on um, the conditions at the Oregon State Hospital System. And uh, it's bad. It's really bad. It's stuff like this bad. Um, and uh, so uh, things are going to have to change in the Oregon State Hospital System. I, I read parts of the actual report. You know, I, I read the newspaper stories, but I always want to go back to the original source and see what it says and uh, some of the anecdotes they uh, have in those in that report or um, not far from this. So it's not as if, you know, we've made these great strides and we have these humane, you know, wonderful treatment systems that, you know, return people to their prior state of sanity. Uh, but things are better. You know, we can say that things are better, especially in most hospitals in the United States. Uh, Oregon is particularly uh, remiss. Now, of course, the Oregon State Hospital was where uh, what novel was based? One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which was written by uh, Ken Kesey, an Oregonian, uh, about... Um, uh, he wrote it uh, as uh, about a fellow who uh, basically seems like he has um, some sort of uh, antisocial personality disorder, and he goes into a, one of these hospitals, and they sort of describe the um, conditions in there. And um, it's a great it's a great novel. I recommend it. It's not probably that you know I wouldn't recommend it on the basis of like trying to research what the conditions were like, but uh, on the basis of uh, how it explores notions of freedom, notions of liberty, notions of um, why people would want to stay in these uh, in these hospitals or even in prisons, if you think about it in that sense. That um, once you're in these institutions, sometimes it becomes more comfortable, more uh, 
uh, sane, more known. It's your little piece of sanity in an insane world, and so you want to stay in there. Anyway, I recommend it. Ah, well, this brings us to talking about what happens in the latter part of the 18th century and then the 19th century with the reform movement. Um, the medical model uh, begins to be applied to mental illness. Um, what's the medical model? Does anybody kind of want to summarize it? Um, up until uh, the 1600s, 1700s, um, we didn't have a real good grasp of sort of how to treat illnesses. That's not really true, but um, uh, what winds up being developed is this idea of the medical model. And the medical model essentially says, um, first of all, in order to know what you're dealing with in terms of an illness, you have to um, you have to record what the symptoms are, right? And if you record the symptoms that are going on in a bunch of different people, um, what you can do from that is begin to classify those symptoms into groups of symptoms. And if you see a constellation of symptoms um, in a wide range of people, then you can say, huh, this is something that occurs. It's not just one person's weird illness. This is something that occurs throughout uh, a large population. And um, the nice thing about that is you can start using treatments for those symptoms and see which treatments work for those symptoms and actually help those symptoms. And if you can classify the symptoms, you can record what treatments work, and hopefully you can um, begin to uh, develop an idea of what causes the, um, uh, the problems, then this leads to uh, the possibility, hopefully, for a cure. So, um, so the medical model had been previously used for physical or physiological illnesses, but it hadn't uh, been used for mental illness. And then what happens is we start seeing mental illness more in a medical model framework that we can see common symptoms and we can begin to classify patients with those symptoms, see which treatments are going to start working for them and start applying those treatments effectively. And uh, hopefully at some point find out what causes it. And the nice thing about this is it starts to reduce the stigma that's associated with having a mental illness. Because at the time, uh, having someone in your family with mental illness was a huge sort of black mark on the family, right? Um, that there must be something wrong with the family. And now it starts to bring it back more to the idea that someone is sick, someone is ill. Um, it's not necessarily something wrong with this, uh, with this whole group of people. And what sort of begins to rise out of that is um, a movement toward what's called moral therapy. Um, basically, applying therapy in a more morally acceptable way, a more humane kind of way. And um, the people who are associated with this are, uh, in England, uh, William Tuke, In the United States, Dorothea Dix. 
is uh, the most prominent figure, and then Philip uh, Philippe Pinel in uh, France. And uh, what they did is they started going into these asylums and saying, hey, you know, we need to treat these people humanely. They're sick. They have an illness. And uh, we can't just be locking them up and uh, uh, charging admission for people to come see them. And the um, asylums that were built after that tended to be much more humane. They tended to have much more open space. Um, patients had access to fresh air. Um, you know, uh, good food, good uh, clean drinking water. They weren't sort of shuffled off uh, and, and sort of hidden away somewhere. As I say, that, didn't, that doesn't mean that things just got instantly wonderful either. Uh, things were still rough, but um, it started to get better. Um, questions, ideas on this? Yes. So, uh, so what your comment is, uh, if I paraphrase it correctly, uh, that w that uh, having someone with a mental illness in your family is very stressful for the people in the family, and also uh, it's a very stressful experience for the people who are treating and working with uh, people with mental illness, and that it's important to kind of address this on a holistic kind of way that all of these people need to be supported so that they can help this person to uh, get better? Sure. Yes. So, you know, the stress of, uh, of working with individuals um, creates the opportunity um, to, have to, to have to sort of respond to that in some way. I mean, you ha that energy has to go somewhere. And um, sometimes it goes into sort of trying to survive as a caretaker as well as trying to survive as a client or a patient. And trying to survive means sometimes uh, doing things that you might consider otherwise uh, unacceptable. Well, otherwise, getting so pulled into that, that 
getting pulled into it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, social psychology theory tends to um, uh, has some applicability here in terms of how we perceive ourselves in relation to others and how we can um, justify our own actions uh, in the context of um, a situation. So the power of the situation can't be denied here. That um, these people who are in this situation that's out of control will respond to it in ways that, uh, that they might not otherwise normally. And uh, we see that, for example, uh, those of you who have taken social psych, or maybe were in my intro psych, I don't remember if I, I don't always get to this, but I showed some clips from the Stanford prison experiment where uh, Phil Zimbardo at Stanford University ran a social psychology experiment looking at when you put, when you take people off the street, essentially these are college students, you take college students, assign them to a role in a system, um, how they begin to uh, slip into those roles and lose sight of their individual identity and become more role-based. And uh, so the, the students who were randomly assigned to being the guards became more guard-like and their behavior became more, more brutal, more uh, 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 degrading in order for them to maintain control in this prison situation. Those who were assigned to being prisoners took on their role as prisoners and became very sort of um, obedient, submissive, um, sometimes rebellious, but um, typically the people who were rebellious were the ones that came in first. They were earlier in the prison, and as they sort of got used to the prison system, they kind of got into their roles, and everybody sort of sorted themselves out. So the situation itself has extraordinary power on our behavior. So um, that's um, if you're interested in more of that, um, uh, take my social psych course and teaching in the spring. That's my shameless self-promotion. Um, let's take a look at what happens in the 20th century. Um, this is a bit more detailed because uh, a lot of things are changing in the 20th century. Uh, plus, it's more recent. Um, so around the turn of the 20th century, we've got basically warehousing of uh, people who are mentally disturbed. Um, these are the conditions in the asylums at that time, or in what are called, become called the hospitals, uh, are not very good still. Patients are not um, typically, uh, don't have a lot of social interaction, social contact, and we still don't have good treatments yet. So um, they wind up basically just being warehoused in these overcrowded facilities. And this is going to go on until the mid-1950s. And in the mid-1950s, uh, what happens is uh, the beginning of uh, psychopharmaceutical development in terms of treating mental illness. 
Uh, this process is fascinating, and uh, if you're interested in this specifically, I can give you uh, the name of a um, uh, memoir written by one of the doctors who was involved in developing these uh, psychopharmaceutical drugs. And um, basically what happens is they're busy sort of developing other kinds of drugs. And they notice that um, a particular class of drugs starts to work with people who have um, delusional symptoms. Delusions are like hallucinations, audio and auditory and visual hallucinations, um, beliefs that are irrational. And um, actually, here's, here's an interesting side story. Um, LSD was developed in, in Switzerland uh, in the 1930s. Uh, it was extracted and developed. And they started um, creating uh, lab animals that had um, these bizarre behaviors. Um, and they, you know, they would use the LSD to create these sort of um, delusional states in lab animals and then uh, gave these um, new drugs that they were developing. Notice that they actually helped control some of this bizarre behavior in these animals. And uh, so then uh, the doctors who were developing the drugs finally uh, started thinking, well, I wonder what it's really like to be uh, mentally disturbed. And they actually started using LSD themselves to try to get a sense of what it's like to have delusions, right? So those of you who have had LSD probably know how delusional you can become on it. And, um, so, and then they actually used the medications themselves to try to uh, relieve these delusions. So it's a fascinating story of the development of these uh, medications in France, mostly in France and uh, Switzerland. Uh, and then later on, these medications were uh, brought over to the United States. Anyway, uh, medications are developed that are going to help control some of the symptoms of schizophrenia. And this is one of the sort of most disturbed behaviors in, in the institutions. Uh, people, especially with what are called the positive symptoms of schizophrenia, will display very disturbed behavior. And the medications allowed these people to bring their symptoms under control. And guess what? They can actually start to take jobs on again, um, go back into the community. They can go back with their families. They can get social support from their families. And it really winds up um, uh, making a big difference in terms of um, the release of people from the asylums. Um, in the 1980, uh, 1960s, um, basically these, asy these asylums start to be emptied out. And what happens is we start to see these large state hospitals start to close. And what opens up are these sort of community care institutions because we've got people who are now on medication management and they can manage their mental disorder with medication, basically what we have to do is have people close to them who can make sure that they're going to keep taking their medication because the big problem with medication is that when you stop taking it, it doesn't work and the delusions return. And part of the delusion can sometimes be that the medication is poisonous and you can't take it because it's going to make you sick. So. And to some degree it does. There are some side effects. We'll talk more about that. 
Um, and so the community care facilities start to take on a lot of the burden. Um, and uh, starting in the 1980s, um, we start to see some huge uh, cuts in mental health support and shifts from public support of mental health treatment to provider uh, support. So basically insurance companies are going to start uh, paying for mental health care. And people who don't have insurance and who can't get mental health care through private providers don't have the public providers to fall back on. And this is sort of the rise of a large proportion of um, individuals on the street who are mentally ill. Um, yep. That's a good question. I don't know. Or even what percent um, responded to medication and were actually able to be released. But uh, it's, it's big. It's a big number. Yeah. There were a lot of people in, um, in institutions. But I don't know the uh, specifics. That's, that is a good question. I should probably try to get some statistics for you. Sure. Um, partly um, the development of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, um, helped define better the uh, symptom sets. It was introduced, I think, in 1950s. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the first edition was in the 1940s or 1950s. I can't be certain of that. And so uh, the development of better diagnostic criteria helps people get out because um, you can say, well, they don't really have this disorder, um, and so we don't need to keep them, or they're not dangerous to themselves or others. And the medication allows them to control their symptoms, yeah. Um, and, of course, uh, you all read the... Um, uh, the article on being sane and insane places and um, got a sense of kind of what the institution itself can kind of do in terms of keeping people there that maybe don't necessarily need to be there, right? So that's its own problem, but that's another story altogether. Um, in the 1990s, we start seeing the... Um, interest in, uh, you know, this is not only, the medical health care is not only a problem in mentally ill populations, but also in people who have physical illnesses. And so there's a call for the beginning of some sort of universal health care that's going to provide um, access to health care for everybody. And an important part of making sure that this is comprehensive is making sure that it also provides mental health care because that's usually an afterthought in these kinds of things. 
We've seen, um, for example, in Oregon, just uh, last year, I think, was the um, Mental Health Parity Act was passed, which says that um, anybody who's providing uh, health care, like insurance providers uh, that are operating in Oregon, need to provide mental health care that is equal to the health care that they provide for physical ailments, right? So uh, we're moving in that direction. Um, it hasn't always been the case because in managed care, one of the things that happens in mental health care is that people will oftentimes uh, need to, um, uh, the insurers will restrict the number of visits that you can make to a therapist, for example, say 12 a year. Um, and for a lot of patients, once a month is not enough to see, uh, to actually have ongoing therapy and have it be effective. Um, so, uh, uh, so it creates kind of this managed care system starts to create some problems, but I think we're starting to see that um, that legislatures are starting to recognize that they need to make sure that people have access to mental health care on the same uh, level as uh, physical health care. So there's some hope there. Um, what about the future? Um, oops. What about the future? Um, what does the future hold? Well, I think we're gonna, we are, you know, the, the movement toward having some sort of um, healthcare that's gonna be somewhat universal is gonna continue. Um, the, um, you know, we still don't have very good diagnostic tools for some of these disorders. Um, we still don't know the cause of uh, most of the disorders, um, the vast majority of the disorders. We really don't know what causes them. We have some treatments for them, but in a lot of cases, we don't know why the treatments work, right? Um, you know, we have uh, pharmaceutical treatments, for example, and we don't know the exact chemical mechanism that these uh, treatments have in the body that allows them to help uh, people uh, reduce their symptoms. And so until we know more about what causes the disorders, uh, you know, any sort of cure is kind of out of the question. So we're a long way from curing uh, psychological disorders, but we have come a long way in terms of treating them and helping people return to functionality who couldn't be functional previously. Um, that's not, that doesn't mean that they return to quote unquote normal because um, the treatments oftentimes have side effects that are, uh, that are disturbing themselves. So. Yeah, uh, first question back here and then up here. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you're raising 
you're raising a good uh, criticism, a very valid criticism that um, any time you invest so strongly in one particular perspective, uh, you risk the idea that you're going to um, uh, not be doing, for example, research in other perspectives that might um, better help understand these disorders. And that's true. Um, and, but remember, we're all humans and we're all organisms and organisms go where the environmental rewards lead them and the environmental rewards are, um, you know, leading researchers to go in those directions, right? So, um, <laughs> it's basic operant conditioning, right? Mental health parity. Yeah. Yeah. To the degree that we can make sure that we provide um, not only uh, pharmaceutical support, but also psychotherapic, psychotherapeutic support, um, that's going to improve that we're going to be addressing the whole problem in the person rather than just the one part, the medical problem versus the, um, you know, this greater uh, behavioral and psychological uh, problem. That's a good question. I don't particularly know. I do know a little bit about the Canadian uh, system because I was uh, living there. And um, under the Canadian system, um, it's sort of, um, it's, it's kind of like on a sliding scale. The less you make, the low, the lowest amount you pay into the system, the more you make, the more you pay into the system. And I, I think it tops out at something like $800 a year. Um, yeah, hold on, yeah. And so um, I do know under that system, um, it's different than the system in the United States. Typically in the United States, psychiatrists who do a prescription uh, a medication for psychological disorders, uh, do mostly medication management. They very infrequently do psychotherapy. Um, but I know that in Canada, uh, the model is more that the psychiatrists are also doing psychotherapy at the same time, uh, as opposed to in the United States, where you'll typically go to one person for medication management and another person for uh, therapy. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a, it adds more administrative costs and everything else, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. One more question. Well, to a great degree, um, you know, as I was saying, the treatment was interesting. You know, the problem here was um, we need to treat people whose behavior is going to be dangerous to themselves or others. And so if someone is sort of withdrawn, um, uh, you know, maybe quiet, not very um, functional, um, it's not so much of a problem. And so it, uh, people would, 
it wasn't considered as, as much of an issue. But yeah, there are medications now, especially the atypical antipsychotics, that uh, treat both, um, or combination therapies that'll treat them. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk more about that when we talk about schizophrenia. Yeah. Um, let's take a break. It's um, about 10 o'clock. Um, can you come back here about 10:15? About 12, 13 minutes. So um, that clears up mostly our historical survey. <laughs> clears up our hands of crumbs, the crumbs of the past, um, and brings us to uh, good segue, huh? And brings us to um, how we approach abnormality in a contemporary context. Um, where am I going with this? Oh, of course, the big uh, dominant kind of perspective right now in terms of understanding psychological disorders is uh, from a biological standpoint. And there's a couple of different ways that we can look at these disorders biologically. One is the notion that there are some uh, kinds of structural, perhaps, differences but also um, we're getting better, a better notion of sort of what kinds of chemical, uh, biochemical processes might be involved in uh, psychological disorders. Um, so structure will take you sort of back to intro psych and um, remind you of the structural processes involved in emotion and regulation, primarily the limbic system. So um, this is our friend, the amygdala, right? And there, this, the amygdala is attached to the hippocampus. And remember, that sort of wraps around both hemispheres. And um, the hippocampus is associated, remember, with what? Anybody remember? Memory um, and emotion, emotional memory. Um, uh, uh, what's called, uh, i got to get my brain working this morning, um, integration of short-term memory to long-term memory, uh, and then integration of memories that we have, sort of tying them together and forming those associations in our brain. So memory and emotion, uh, the amygdala is associated, remember, with what? Mostly fear and rage. Um, if we stimulate the amygdala in cats, for example, uh, depending where it's stimulated, we'll either get um, a cat that cowers in fear or a cat that just goes bonkers and um, is in a fit of rage, literally. Yeah, that's my cat. Um, I have a neurotic cat at home. It's kind of funny because um, I, uh, uh, when... Uh, my fiance couldn't find work here, so she had to move to Arizona. And she took her cat with her, and so I was just sitting in my apartment alone. And um, my landlord had this cat that he needed to get rid of because his daughter was going to college, and it was her cat. And it didn't get along with the other cat that lived there. So I said, oh, okay, I'll give it a try. And 
I took the cat in and I, I noticed it was kind of neurotic at first and um, like it, it really funny it had this weird attachment disorder because it was <laughs> see this is a psychologist looking at cat behavior so the cat would um, you know it'd come up on my uh, I would be sitting watching TV or something and I kind of I get in my recliner and just chill out and I'd be chilled out in the recliner the cat would come up on my chest and kind of purr and it'd be you know real comfortable and stuff and um, you know, it would stop purring, and I'd be petting it. And the next thing I know, the cat would just go, and it would just like, it would start growling, and it would just, and I'd be petting it, and we'd be like, like, what is wrong with you, cat? And then it would just like freak out and take off, you know? So I told the landlord, I don't know if this is going to work out, but I stuck with the cat, and I think it's starting to calm down a little more, but um, it's definitely still neurotic. But so am I, so we make a good pair. Yeah. Um, so the amygdala, I think this cat probably has amygdala issues. And um, then uh, remember our friend, the uh, pituitary gland, and that's associated with what? Hormone release, what kinds of hormones mostly? Remember? Uh, in some ways, yeah, um, social, uh, but mostly associated with reproductive uh, hormones. Oh, sexual. Did you say sexual? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said social. Yeah. Yeah, sexual. Yeah, reproductive. Yeah, I'm sorry. So, yeah, um, follicle-stimulating hormone, uh, let's see, FSH, luteinizing hormone, um, HC, uh, beta-HCG. HTG, okay, yep. And so this is telling, you know, this is really flooding the body with these hormones that are associated with survival. So this is sort of, you know, this whole system, remember, um, the, the hindbrain here uh, really forms as the first part of your brain, the brain stem and the uh, cerebellum. And then the second part to form is this uh, forebrain, the, which includes the limbic system. And uh, the hypothalamus is directly connected to the uh, pituitary gland, right? And hypothalamus is associated with... Um, partly, this whole system is really emotionally active. Um, thyroid... Um, it will do some inhibition, um, but basically self-regulation, regulation of body temperature, regulation of um, emotion, regulate, you know, sort of, as you say, kind of inhibition and activation, making sure that things are in balance and regulated, right? Um, now, I don't have it labeled, but sitting out here, uh, which hangs right off the hypothalamus, uh, and is associated with the pituitary gland and all this whole system is what? Do you know what this is up here? Anybody? It's got um, nerve fibers and receptors that extend down through the nasal cavity. And so this is the olfactory, the olfactory bulb. And the olfactory bulb um, is associated with smell. And so um, smell and emotion and memory are really closely tied together, right? 
So this whole thing works as a system to um, involved with emotion and um, regulation of our uh, bodily uh, functions, right? Um, oh, here we go. I have these labeled, don't I? The amygdala, hippocampus. And then um, sitting up on top of the um, this limbic system is considered part of the forebrain also is the uh, cerebrum. Remember the cerebellum is associated with like um, coordination, motor movement, um, balance, stuff like that. Uh, the cerebellum, on the other hand, is associated with what we call higher functions or associative functions. We call this the association areas and it's split into lobes. And um, so the first part in the front here uh, is the prefrontal cortex. Really, the prefrontal cortex is this very uh, front part of the um, frontal lobe. And it's associated with um, sort of the ability to control your um, impulses, um, planning, um, motivation, having initiative, um, and our ability to interact effectively socially. So if we've got problems in prefrontal cortex function, that's going to cause functional problems in our ability to, uh, you know, to do, to get along socially with other people. Um, and in fact, the lobotomy procedure, the intent of the lobotomy was basically, you know, um, Freeman would take a uh, ice pick, essentially. It's a, a, you know, literally an ice pick about that long that was sterilized, of course. All these instruments were sterilized. And you can go in um, right here um, and you can go along the outside of the eyeball and you don't damage the eyeball. And there's a thin uh, plate of bone called the orbital uh, that separates the orbital. Uh, anybody A&P? Orbital cavity um, that separates the orbital cavity and the brain and you just pop up through that thin piece of bone and the ice pick can then go in here and he kind of swishes it around and the idea is to separate the connections between the frontal lobe and the limbic system in here and that was presumably um, what helped people um, with schizophrenia but um, as we'll see when we talk more about that it wasn't always very effective. Uh, he didn't get the Nobel Prize. Well, Freeman didn't, but uh, Moniz did, yeah. yeah. Well, I think by then uh, they had noticed that if there were lesions in the prefrontal cortex, remember, um, we'll talk more about this when we talk about Phineas Gage, but um, they, know that they knew that the, the frontal cortex was associated with behavioral issues. And so, um, and they knew, of course, that the limbic system was associated with emotion and, regu and regulation. So the idea was if we um, sever these connections, is there some effect on behavior? And Moniz originally did his research on monkeys in uh, Portugal and uh, monkeys that had these, you know, behavioral issues. And he found out that, you know, it actually worked. 
And uh, so Freeman and Moniz said, well, let's try it in people. And it was originally started in Europe, and then it moved over here with Walter Freeman. But you'll learn about that if you watch the documentary on Monday. Is that what it's called? The sphenoid? It's, it's sort of um, circular, I think. Okay. I don't know what it's called, yeah. Yeah, I know, me too. Um, and then uh, remember that you've got in the cortex also the sensory and motor cortex. Um, anybody remember where the sensory cortex is? It's a strip of cortex right in back of this division called the central sulcus. And uh, that receives sensory input from all of your uh, peripheral nervous system. So your peripheral nervous system, remember, sends sensation input to the sensory cortex through the uh, uh, thalamus. It routes it through the thalamus and it gets to the uh, sensory cortex. I remember where the sensory cortex is because I know that the occipital lobe is associated with uh, vision and vision processing. So I remember that vision is a sensory is a sensation and so it must be closer to the occipital lobe in relation to the central sulcus. And the motor cortex then of course is in front of the central sulcus at the rear part of the frontal lobe and that controls motor movement out to the rest of the body, right? Um, and then the other two areas that are important here, uh, Broca's and Wernicke's. Anybody remember where Broca's and Wernicke's are? What's that? They're on the left uh, hemisphere, yep. And what part of the left hemisphere you remember? Okay, the left frontal is one of them, and that's Broca's area, and that's associated with language production. And the way I remember that is I remember where the sensory cortex is, and so it's closer to the sensory cortex. So, I'm sorry, the motor cortex. Undo that. The motor cortex is in the frontal lobe, and so um, speech production I associate with motor function. Then... Oh, what's that? So yeah, the Wernicke's area is back here. It sort of um, shares some regions with the parietal lobe and the temporal lobe. So um, if you have a stroke, for example, uh, in one of those areas, then if you have a stroke in Broca's, uh, you may not be able to talk to people, to produce speech with people or uh, and this, this applies equally to uh, both uh, speaking and uh, uh, signing individuals. People are deaf, too. Uh, you won't be able to produce speech, but you will be able to comprehend what other people are saying to you. And vice versa, if you get a stroke in Wernicke's, you won't, it'll be like you won't be able to make sense of what's being said, but you can actually produce speech. So it's kind of a bizarre thing. Uh, Wernicke's would be back here. Um, sort of on the margin of the parietal and temporal lobes, um, mid part of the temporal and parietal lobes. 
And that's only on the left hemisphere. So if you have a stroke in those areas on the right hemisphere, you don't have uh, language production or uh, comprehension problems. Where do biological abnormalities come from? Well, um, some of them we're born with, um, but most of them will come from injuries. Um, brain damage is a huge uh, problem. And um, the case of Phineas Gage was the first indication of how damaging a specific part of the brain would affect behavior. Uh, Phineas Gage, um, does your book have the Phineas Gage story? I hope so. Um, Phineas Gage was a railroad worker in the 19th century. Okay. And uh, he was... Uh, one of his jobs was to tamp down the explosive when they were blasting for um, trying to, you know, blast rock. You know, they have to go through a mountain and they have to make a tunnel with rock. And so they drill holes in the rock and they would tamp down the explosive because in order to have explosive force, it needs to be under pressure. So they tamp it down, put cotton on top. And uh, he was tamping and the explosive... Uh, the, the uh, explosive went off and the tamping rod that he was used came up through his chin and um, basically exited out the top of his skull and flew off about 200 yards away, landed about 200 yards away. Um, and he survived somehow. Um, and he got, uh, got medical care and got patched up. And the person who was previously Phineas Gage before the accident was not the person who was Phineas Gage after the accident. So there were these huge changes in personality and his ability to control his language, his you know, um, outbursts of emotional uh, displays. Um, a lot of um, uh, someone who was very sort of mild-mannered before became very impulsive and out of control. And so um, that was the first indication that damage to this uh, prefrontal cortex may uh, be related to problems with um, uh, emotion and impulse, right? And that there was some relationship there. Um, so uh, in terms of um, understanding brain, uh, function that was really the beginning of sort of appreciating how, how much influence brain damage can have on behavior. And of course, uh, we know a lot more about that since then. Um, the, uh, besides brain structure abnormalities, um, oh, I guess I should while we're talking about brain uh, structure, um, when we do, for example, uh, MRI scans or CAT scans, um, probably MRIs, of um, brains of people that have schizophrenia and normal controls, we consistently see um, change differences in the volume of the ventricles, uh, which are these uh, gaps inside your brain that hold cerebral spinal fluid, which is a nutrient and a... Um, uh, helps remove waste products. 
Um, and these ventricles tend to be larger in individuals with um, schizophrenia. That's an association. There's no causal relationship there necessarily. We don't know what about these larger ventricles may be associated with having schizophrenia. There's just this association. So very little is really known about um, how structure affects um, these disorders, just that we're starting to, you know, we're at the point here where we're collecting data on it and trying to figure out, gee, what would be the association here, right? So, oh, yeah. I don't know. I own, the only thing I know about Alzheimer's is the uh, damage coming from the development of plaques uh, in the tissues, but I don't know about the ventricle size. I think they're... There, there might be a shrinking of the brain, uh, too, in Alzheimer's, but I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure about that. So um, the second area that we start talking about um, biochemical responses in mental disorders is uh, neurotransmitters, and probably the one that's sort of most commonly known in the general public is our friend serotonin. And we find serotonin um, to be uh, an indicator in a broad range of psychological disorders. Um, the most, the one that most people know about is its relationship with depression, uh, that what happens with individuals that have clinical depression, major depression, if we give them a drug that contains a precursor chemical for serotonin and gets you to make more serotonin or allows the receptors to more effectively use the serotonin that's available, people get better. Um, but again, that exact mechanism of why that works is really poorly understood. We can't go into your brain and actually measure the amount of serotonin. We can only retrospectively look at your behavior in response to these drugs. So. It's a relatively um, poorly understood relationship, but it is, uh, it is one there. Um, norepinephrine and epinephrine. <coughs> Excuse me. So you may know this <coughs> as adrenaline, right? So very excitatory neurotransmitters. <coughs> um, so very excitatory neurotransmitters that are involved with um, uh, with um, motivation, um, emotional uh, processes. Dopamine, um, which is a very powerful neurotransmitter, which seems to be involved with um, sensations of pleasure, right? Um, and we 
think it's um, one of the drugs that's uh, implicated with um, substance abuse issues. We'll be talking about substance use disorders later in the term. Um, basically, if you um, take a rat and uh, give them, put an electrode in their brain that stimulates the area of the brain that is associated with dopamine production, they will sit there and press the lever, which gives the stimulation, and press the lever, and press the lever, and press the lever. And they won't eat, and they won't sleep, and they won't have sex, and they won't run around. They will just sit and press the lever until they die, essentially, of exhaustion. Um, and um, so that's one reason why uh, we think it's associated with, um, uh, with these uh, substance use disorders. And it's probably um, one of the areas that's stimulated uh, when certain drugs are um, ingested. The other um, biochemical route that uh, we think is associated with psychological disorders are hormonal uh, changes. <clears throat> Hormone deficiencies can possibly, <coughs> possibly come from injuries to areas that produce hormones. Um, you know, uh, personal anecdote, whatever that's worth. Um, I have... Uh, I had testicular cancer, and so I had to have one testicle uh, removed. And that alone may not have created it, but I have a testosterone deficiency. And some of the symptoms that are associated with testosterone deficiency, uh, for example, is depression. So um, hormones can have powerful effects on moods and emotions, as um, you know, women are probably aware of because of the hormonal changes that occur as part of their normal monthly menstrual cycles. Men have these cycles, but they tend to be um, more frequent and um, daily cycles, and they tend to be less um, disturbing. So, um, so uh, hormones do have this uh, strong effect. Um, unlike neurotransmitters, hormones actually travel through the bloodstream, so their effects tend to come on more slowly and tend to wear off more slowly, whereas neurotransmitter effects can, can happen much more instantaneously because they're traveling through um, nerve system. So we think about, for example, the hypothalamus um, releases corticotrophin-releasing factor. Corticotrophins are um, associated with stress, so hormones that allow us to respond to some stressful uh, situation. And so if this is very active, perhaps um, there may be some association with anxiety. Um, the pituitary gland um, uh, also releases adrenocorticotrophic hormone, ACTH, and this is another hormone that's going to be involved with um, responses to stress and getting sort of that fight-or-flight response that we get when we're in some sort of a stressful situation that requires a response. And ultimately, <clears throat> these uh, hormones travel to the adrenal glands, which are going to produce um, epinephrine, norepinephrine, and, um, and get our body ready to respond. Right? Now, um, 
we know uh, better, we know a little bit more now about uh, uh, the effects of genetics in uh, psychological disorders. Um, and as we continue to map the human genome, the Human Genome Project is still in, in process, and we get better data on what kinds of genetic uh, markers may be associated with disorders, we get a better picture of how genetic factors come into play. And most of our best data for this comes from twin studies. Why? What are, why are twins useful in studying genetic influence, especially monozygotic twins? Yeah. Good. So in, experiment, in experiments, if we're going to try to find the cause of something, we need to hold all other factors the same except for the independent variable, remember. And so the independent variable that we're going to vary here is genetics or environment, right? If we can hold genetics constant, we can then see the uh, total effect of the environment. So uh, monozygotic twins that have the same DNA if they are separated at birth and raised in different environments, we can get a much better picture of the effects of genetics separate from the effects of environment. And so um, when we do these twin studies, we calculate the heritability of a particular psychological trait. And essentially, heritability is the amount of variance between individuals who, for example, have uh, the same DNA that's accounted for um, by genetic influence or by environmental influence. So the amount of uh, influence that the genetics has. Um, the, a recent meta-analysis that was done on this in 2004 was done by Thomas Bouchard. And he looked at a bunch of twin studies. The problem with twin studies is that they tend to be small n studies, right? Small number of subjects because there aren't that many uh, monozygotic twins that were separated at birth. And so what Bouchard did is he did what's called a meta-analysis. In statistics, a meta-analysis is a way to take a bunch of separate studies and combine them together by using statistical procedures to um, equalize out the differences in the studies. Okay. Um, it's a fairly complex statistical process, but um, it shows validity uh, in, a, in a lot of uh, situations. So this meta-analysis um, shows, for example, uh, his data show that schizophrenia has about 80% of the variability in whether someone develops schizophrenia or not can be accounted for by genetic factors. So one of the most highly heritable uh, disorders uh, that we have. And uh, that doesn't mean that, you know, and this essentially means that if you have a first order relative um, that has schizophrenia, you will have a higher likelihood than the general population of developing schizophrenia. It doesn't mean that you will develop schizophrenia because there's another 20% that's accounted for by the environment, differences in environment. So that's extraordinarily large. Um, the other disorders are much lower than that. Uh, alcoholism, a substance use disorder, shows somewhere between 50 and 60 percent of the variance is accounted for by genetics. Yeah. Is this for the, uh, online group, 
Um, uh, can't print it out, but you can see it online, yeah, in the podcast, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then um, another couple of them that have large uh, uh, genetic effects, antisocial personality disorder, which in children and adolescents is called a conduct disorder. And then later in adulthood, it's called antisocial personality disorder. Um, tends to have a pretty strong uh, genetic uh, component. Um, it's probably more. It, it, it's probably more um, that um, the environment affects adults more. That if they're if they're in a family environment that has this stuff in it, that the effect of the environment is stronger later in life. The effect of genetics is stronger earlier in life. So um, so yeah. But it also may have to do with diagnostic differences uh, in children and adults because they are two separate disorders, um, conduct disorder and then antisocial personality disorder. But um, it, it originally, antisocial personality original, or disorder originally um, was uh, started out as conduct disorder and then started getting applied to adults. Yeah, question. Yes. Yes. <coughs> yes. Yes. Um, that's called what, that's what's called a shared environment effect. Um, and uh, alcohol alcoholism, I think, was one of the genetic uh, one of the factors. That, that showed a shared environmental effect. So if you, have the, if you have the genetic predisposition and you're raised in an environment like that, then it increases, you know, it becomes sort of cumulative almost. Right? No, um, this is strictly the genetic variability. Um, but it goes, it gets higher if you put in the shared environment effect, yeah. 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 Yeah, even if they were raised um, in a different environment, yeah. Yeah. But if you're in that same environment, or if you're in a different environment that has alcoholic behaviors, then, then it go, Then there is a shared environment effect that increases it. Right. His meta-analysis, I think, just looked at uh, alcoholism and not other substance use disorders in general. Yeah. But um, it's not uncommon to have these things co-occurring. 
for example, um, someone who has who, who has alcoholism can have other substance use disorders and can have co-occurrence with a lot of other uh, psychological disorders. In fact, it's the the more the most difficult treatment for psych psychiatric disorders is people who are what are known as dual diagnosis, um, who have comorbid alcoholism with um, other psychological disorders because treating one requires treating the other and some of the treatments that work for one exacerbate the other and there becomes a lot of um, problems with um, dual diagnosis. Um, major depression, um, uh, lower but still fairly strong at um, 0.37 heritability. Um, but again, that shows that environment has a stronger effect in depression than it does, for example, in schizophrenia. Um, and a lot of research now is looking at basically the idea that uh, major depression can be effectively treated um, with uh, environmental changes. You know, basically, if you keep yourself in positive situations, positive outcomes, positive uh, 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 stimulation, as opposed to seeking out situations that are very um, depressing or negative, that it does have a, a measurable effect. Um, so, so the environment does have a pretty strong effect there, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, that study was um, uh, the one that I know of was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and uh, uh, and yeah, uh, in almost all of these disorders, the combination therapies work better than either one separately. Yeah, yeah. Why? Why do you think that is? We're social animals. Okay. Um, okay, so okay, good. The more sort of holistic approach, then. I tend to explain it as, um, let's say that I'm, I have schizophrenia and I go to a psychotherapist and I'm convinced that the psychotherapist is part of a government conspiracy to, um, uh, you know, to keep me uh, from uh, being the scientist who's going to discover the cure for uh, cancer. And um, I go to the psychotherapist and I sit there and listen, but 
um, all the while my delusions are telling me that this person is um, trying to keep me from doing the work that I really need to do. I'm not going to respond very well to therapy, am I? So the medication helps control the symptoms which may allow therapy to work better, right? And similarly with depression, you know, if I go to a therapist and, or first of all, I can't even get the motivation together to get out of bed and get to the therapist, nothing's going to happen, right? So, yeah. Um, so that's the bio, biological approach. The psychological approach um, essentially starts out with our good friend Sigmund Freud. And uh, Freud says... Uh, that our uh, psychological problems, and he describes these as neuroses, arise out of childhood uh, conflicts. And Freud was particularly interested in the notion of sexual conflicts. Um, that as we are developing, we go through uh, stages of uh, development. And uh, so he, he starts out by uh, I think there's the uh, oral stage and then the anal stage and then the um, phallic stage and then the there's something like um, late yeah that sounds some, it's something like that latency period and then the genital. Oops, did I get this wrong? No, I think that's right. Uh, I can't, I'm not sure if I get this one right. Um, anyway, as we go through these stages of development, if our development gets interrupted here in this stage, and this is like age, uh, he says this is something like four to uh, six or something. And um, if we have some sort of interruption in development, we can develop um, sexual conflicts um, that will affect our life later on. And so he describes some stuff like the Oedipal complex, where uh, we will, uh, that uh, women, because he was working with, uh, uh, I'm sorry, men, the idea that if, um, in, if development is interrupted at this stage, um, that we will develop um, an attraction to our opposite sex parent. And since we can't consummate that sexual attraction with the opposite sex parent, we, uh, ex we experience frustration, and, but we have to sort of repress that frustration, right? And so this sort of sexual conflict sits there and brews and continues to cause trouble. He describes that both for uh, men and also for women, that men are attracted to their mothers, sexually attracted to their mothers, women are sexually attracted to their fathers. Um, but he also has this idea that um, toilet training, interruptions during these, uh, this anal phase um, uh, can cause conflicts that result in what are called anal retentive behaviors, right? We all know that term. Very few of us use the term anal expulsive. Um, someone who's, you know, sort of compulsively messy and, um, you know, can't get things together, right? Um, and then so 
his explanation is that we manage these childhood conflicts using defense mechanisms. And so uh, these defense mechanisms are things like um, rationalization. Um, I can intellectually rationalize my behavior um, and that doesn't really resolve the problem, but it helps me get by. Um, denial, we can essentially deny that we have these conflicts. Um, regression, we can go back in time. We can regress our behavior to a time before we had these conflicts, right? And so um, this is sort of, this is fairly kind of well accepted at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, in order to find out if people have these conflicts, we can't just ask them because remember, they're unconscious sexual conflicts. And we have to use this weird kind of projective testing that's going to try to get at these unconscious conflicts, something that is not conscious and aware, but rather unconscious. Um, but Freud, uh, you know, this stuff doesn't have a lot of validity. We have a hard time establishing reliability and validity with projective testing. Um, but Freud will uh, still does have influence in terms of the therapeutic de uh, methods that were developed. He starts out with something called free association. Well, he originally starts out with um, hypnosis in uh, France and uh, in Austria. He basically is working with um, relatively wealthy women who develop what are called conversion disorders. Um, essentially, conversion disorders are some sort of physiological uh, expression of what he thought were these um, sexual conflicts that they were experiencing. So they'd come into him with something like glove anesthesia, where their hand would be totally numb. And uh, <clears throat> he'd put them into hypnosis and work with them in hypnosis, and they'd regain use of their hands. But they wouldn't um, get better in the long term. And so he was looking for something not hypnosis that would help them uh, be better for a longer period of time. And he develops the idea of free association therapy. Basically, uh, put somebody on a couch, just tell them to say whatever comes into their mind, and, um, you know, he would ask them occasionally, well, tell me something more about that. And at the point where someone would say, oh, well, I can't remember, or I don't want to talk about it, he would say, that's the point at which we found the repressed, you know, this repressed conflict, and we have to, you know, dig it out now. And so uh, psychoanalysis is the therapeutic method that he develops uh, for trying to do this. And they're still psychoanalytic practitioners, but um, for the most part, uh, it's not a method of therapy that's used that much. It tends to be extraordinarily long-term and weekly or twice a week, very frequent uh, treatments. And so it's extraordinarily expensive as a result. Um, Okay, so there we go, resistance. And then the other thing that Freud is known for is uh, the idea that he can use dreams to try to discover what's going on in the unconscious. So dream interpretation is part of uh, Freud's idea. Um, the therapeutic method that's used mostly right now and that shows uh, good efficacy 
in uh, placebo-controlled studies is um, called cognitive behavioral therapy, and that's the main model of therapy now. But really, free association is kind of the parent of cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, that idea that the, the client and the therapist work one-on-one -on -one together in a, uh, in a very um, close relationship is really the basis of CBT. Um, speaking of behavioral, um, this is the notion that psychological disorders can arise from conditioning uh, and maybe observational learning. So you all remember from intro psych, um, classical conditioning. Um, Pavlov is the name that you probably remember about that. So Pavlov conditioned a dog to salivate in response to some neutral stimulus like ringing a bell, whereas normally the dog would only salivate in response to um, tasting meat or uh, getting uh, meat powder blown into its mouth. Um, and so this idea that we can acquire behavioral responses to stimuli by conditioning, by classical conditioning, meant uh, that maybe some of the things that we have uh, phobias about, fears, may be classically conditioned. And so phobias are treated with a therapy called systematic desensitization, basically exposing someone to um, more and more intense stimuli of the feared stimulus. And that will eventually undo the classically conditioned uh, fear, for example. Operant conditioning is totally different, remember. Operant conditioning doesn't work by just associating one thing with another, you know, the bell with the meat powder and getting salivation. Classical conditioning can only get a reflexive response like salivation, eye blinks, um, uh, something that already exists in the organism some sort of behavior that already exists in the organism and automatically happens in the organism. Whereas operant conditioning, we can actually create novel behaviors, new behaviors that didn't already exist in the organism. Right. So toilet training is an example of operant conditioning. You know, organisms don't naturally go sit on the toilet when they need to take a crap, right? Um, we have to actually train our children to do that. And um, so we have to use operant conditioning. We have to use rewards and punishments in order to train their behavior. And so the idea with operant conditioning in psychotherapy in a therapeutic environment is that we can create what are called token economies. That when someone gives us the behavior that's desired, we give them some sort of token literal token that they can actually then exchange for something that they want, right? So this is used as a way, especially in uh, inpatient situations, to encourage and train up desirable behaviors and discourage and train out undesirable behaviors, okay? Yeah. Yes. Yes, it, it can. 
remember uh, in operant conditioning, there are things called schedules of reinforcement. Um, you start out in operant conditioning by every time an organism uh, emits a uh, particular behavior, you give them a reinforcement. So rat presses the lever, you give them a pellet. Presses the lever, you give them a pellet. Presses the lever, you give them a pellet. And that trains up the behavior. And once the behavior is trained, you can start reducing the frequency of the reinforcements. So they have to press the lever twice to get a pellet. And then you can go to five times, and then you can go to 10 times, and then you can go to 20 times, and you can stretch out the periods between reinforcement. But if you stop administering the reinforcement altogether, the behavior will uh, extinguish. Um, there is something known as spontaneous recovery in operant conditioning where after a period, uh, after you go through an extinction procedure in operant conditioning um, and you expose them to the stimulus, um, it'll come back, the response will come back at about half the strength that it originally was before. And so uh, uh, you can get it back after it's been extinguished, but um, it doesn't come back as strongly and you may have to retrain. Um, yeah, right, right. Um, it, uh, that's a good question. How, how toilet training continues to be reinforcing. Um, it could be that, um, the part of the reinforcement is the memory that you, you did a good thing in the past and you have this intrinsic kind of reinforcement going on. Remember that reinforcement doesn't always have to be extrinsic. Sometimes it can be intrinsic. Yeah, question you? Sure. Uh, so um, that, oops, that brings us to something we didn't talk about here, which is observational learning. The idea that we learn from watching other people do behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the cognitive approach uh, says that uh, behavioral problems, abnormal behavior comes from distortions of thinking essentially. And um, there's also the idea that we can create distortions in memory. Um, memories are relatively easy to construct um, even if the person didn't actually experience something. Um, it's relatively easy to create a memory for an event that didn't actually happen. Um, conversely, it's relatively easy to get rid of a memory or convince someone that they don't have a memory of something that did happen. Um, and it's also relatively easy to create distortions of memory, um, not only by other people creating distortions, but our own biases and heuristics that what we observe um, when we encode it into memory, it can actually be encoded differently from when it, what actually happened. Memory is extraordinarily, um, uh, it, it, it can be very effective, but it also is subject to distortions. 
um, which creates a bit of a problem when we think of it in terms of the legal system and what we use in terms of eyewitness testimony, right? Um, that's subject to a lot of distortions and biases. So police, for example, in interrogations have to be extraordinarily careful that they don't create uh, a false memory or distort existing memories through questioning processes. Um, so you can see how that might come into play with uh, disturbed behavior or disturbed uh, cognitions also. Um, attitudes um, and behaviors um, are part of the cognitive perspective. And so um, when we think of the relationship between attitudes and behaviors, the attitudes that we adopt can sometimes lead to behaviors that may be um, desirable or undesirable. Bless you. You're welcome. And so um, CBT is based largely on the cognitive uh, perspective um, that if we can um, help someone to realize that their thinking is distorted, then we can possibly get them to start thinking in less distorted ways. Um, the behavioral part of CBT has to do with um, if you change someone's behavior, oftentimes their cognition will follow. Um, if you get someone to behave in uh, a particular way, you can sometimes get them to change their thinking about a situation or, or a person. And so um, that's a process, a uh, social psychological process, um, broadly known as, cogn uh, as uh, cognitive dissonance theory. Um, but yeah, CBT is very useful in, um, particularly Aaron Beck is known for developing the Beck Depression Inventory and it's used effectively in treating depression. So, you know, you have to, one of the things you have to do with treating depression is get people to start behaving in ways that are not depressed in addition to helping them with their cognitions. So. Um, the last uh, approach contemporary approach that I'll talk about is the social uh, approach and the idea that we exist in a social context, right? We don't exist as isolated individuals in a vacuum. So in this uh, social context, we have roles that we have to fulfill. The patient and the therapist, right, have social roles. And um, culture enforces oftentimes social roles. And if you step out of your social role, then there can be consequences for doing that. But also families enforce social roles. And so this, is, um, this goes to uh, the idea of, um, that we'll talk about more later, family systems theory, which has to do with the idea that um, family systems operate with individuals in particular roles. And so if someone, and, and those roles help the system operate. And if someone steps out of their role, then the system starts to get upset and tends to want to bring that person back into the system in their role so that the system continues to function the way it has, which may be dysfunctional, may not be functional. Um, so, for example, if someone in a family has a role of being the drug addict, that 
when they get well, sometimes the system will actually start to punish them and, and, and actually bring them back. The only way that they can get back into the system is by adopting that role of the problem in the family, let's say, or the behavior problem, right? So um, uh, this is described pretty well in uh, quite a bit of literature in terms of uh, alcoholic family systems where um, the alcoholic has a role, but then the other people in the family system have other roles that need to be fulfilled in order to have the system work uh, effectively. But we'll talk more about that. Um, attachment uh, is considered part of the social approach. And the idea with attachment is that um, in infancy, we develop um, either a secure attachment to our caregiver, typically our mothers, or an insecure attachment to our caregiver. And that secure and insecure attachment is um, sort of reciprocal between the infant and the mother. Sometimes the infant uh, is a very difficult infant, and so the mother responds by being very distant, which can create uh, insecure attachment styles. Or um, the, the parent may just be distant and non-communicative, which can create an insecure attachment with the child. Um, conversely, a child can develop secure attachments, which allow them to trust the caregiver more deeply. And so we, we have some disorders which are known as attachment disorders, um, which have to do with uh, people that have difficulty in interpersonal relationships and trust relationships. Um, and you probably from intro psych may remember Harry Harlow's experiments with uh, monkeys and attachment. And basically um, he found that uh, just the aspect of comfort providing comfort to a baby. These are monkeys that they were working on with Harlow, but then it was shown later with uh, Mary Ainsworth's research with attachment. But Harlow's exper experiments with the monkey showed that there is a measurable effect of just comfort, providing a baby security and comfort, which actually allows them to interact more effectively with their environment, with the other people in their environment, with the objects in their environment. And so they tend to be much more confident in exploring their environment. And that's important for development. So, yeah. Sure. 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 Our culture, um, we have certain roles to fulfill in the culture. And... Um, when people step out of those social roles, there tend to be consequences um, and uh, that, that keep them in those social roles. Um, it's, it generally tends to show up more in um, family systems because people are closer, but, uh, but it can extend into broader um, cultural roles. Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah, sure. So, so gender is a social role. Uh, and in fact, we'll talk 
more about that when we talk about gender identity disorder. Uh, what happens when someone physically looks like one sex, but psychologically feels more comfortable as the other sex's gender, right? Um, more like um, the pressures that come from social expectations. And what's that? Uh, you, okay, well, yeah, in a psychodynamic perspective, that would, yeah, it would be this sort of unconscious conflict we experience between our own individual experience and then the expectations of the social uh, role. Right. Yeah, if you don't fit in, it can, yeah, that can be a stressor. And we'll see when we talk about the um, biopsychosocial model that, um, that this is, uh, that these stressors become an issue. I'm going to have to rush through a couple things here. Um, that gets at the idea of social structures that um, when social structures become oppressive, then people start to exhibit behaviors that may be um, disordered or, or uh, unusual. And this gets at the whole idea of adaptation. The idea that um, one, of the, one of the things that we think of when we start defining a behavior as abnormal is that it has some sort of um, maladaptive characteristic. It keeps us from functioning effectively in our environments. Um, and so um, if the social structures are dysfunctional, maybe these malad what we would normally call maladaptive responses are actually adaptive responses, right? And I was kind of getting at what uh, Iris was bringing up in the context of um, how, uh, you know, behaviors that... Uh, I can't remember how you, you brought it up. I think so, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So um, when, when we're in some sort of dysfunctional social environment, we have to survive, right? And we have, may have to change our behaviors to become dysfunctional in order to survive in that dysfunctional system, right? Um, sure, it's in a context. Yeah, yeah. It's adaptive. It's adaptation. Coping. So it's a personal adaptation, yeah. Um, so this is that idea with family systems theory, basically that systems like to stay in balance or in equilibrium. And when they go out of equilibrium, people tend to want to bring it back into balance, bring it back into equilibrium, get it to work the way it used to work. Um, because people are uncomfortable with change, mostly. Um, and the person who uh, s sort of 
popularized this notion is uh, R.D. Lang, and if you're interested in reading some of his stuff, uh, Politics and the Family is probably the most famous in this regard. And he actually wrote about the idea that schizophrenia may be a disorder that is mostly created by these dysfunctional uh, family systems. And um, that also arises out of Freud's idea of schizophrenogenic mothers, which is an awful sexist, right? We talked about this last time, awful sexist notion that, you know, the mothering style creates um, these uh, schizophrenic behaviors. Um, so it's a bit in the psychodynamic perspective, uh, but uh, I think it's a worth um, reading if you come across it. It's a relatively short uh, volume, and it, um, uh, and it pre presents an alternative perspective to understanding this stuff and what's dominant right now. Um, so one last thing before we take a break here. Sorry, I'm taking you over a few minutes, but... Um, how do we integrate all this stuff? How do we pull it all together? Well, the current model um, approaches psychological disorders from what's called the biopsychosocial model. That is, we have to consider all of these perspectives in order to understand psychological disorders. Um, and that these factors, the biological factor and the social factor, Oops, I think I might have a diagram here. We've got these biological factors and these psychological factors and these social factors. That these are interactive. That they all affect each other. And um, psychological disorders need to be understood from this complex um, interactive relationship model rather than trying to simply understand things from just the biological, just the social, or just the psychological approach. Um, and that kind of gets at um, the diathesis stress model, which basically proposes that there is some predisposition, a diathesis, um, and then some kind of social stressor which may trigger a psychological disorder. So someone may have a predisposition for schizophrenia, um, which is biological, but it takes the social pressure, for example, of adolescence, um, because oftentimes schizophrenia will emerge in late adolescence, and the lack of effective psychological coping skills it takes that whole interaction and that whole combination in order to have the disorder emerge, right? Okay. Anything before we take a break here? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, biological predispositions. Maybe if you could show convincingly that there's some uh, brain structure change as a result of it. Um, there's a lot of support right now for the notion that um, environ that that environment does change brain function and can actually change brain structure. So yeah, yeah. I don't know specifically about that particular. Okay. Cool. So we do have schizophrenogenic mothers, maybe. <laughs> um, all right, let's take a break. It's getting on 11:30. Sorry to take you a little over. Um, can we come back here at about uh, five of uh, 12? And then we should be able to finish up in the last 50 minutes or so. That'll give you time to grab some lunch or whatever. <laughs>